Thanks for checking out this Church in the City podcast. For more information, please visit www.churchinthecity.us. All right, if we have a Bible, let's uh, turn, if we can, to the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 3. We are continuing in our series uh, through Ruth. Ruth, a series is called The Redeemer. And uh, it's been a fun series so far. And uh, I feel like God wants to continue just uh, speaking into our hearts this morning. Um, Just as you turn there, just to let you guys all know, this is um, the hot season at uh, Church in the City. One of the, uh, we love this building, we love this facility, it kind of feels like home, but one of, the, one of the struggles that we do have in this facility is that there is no air conditioning, as I'm sure you can probably tell, hence the fans, and um, also after church every Sunday, uh, from now until the end of the summer, we are going to be serving ices, uh, flavored, uh, flavored kind of popsicles, just to try and kind of cool, cool things down a bit. Um, I know it's a little uncomfortable. Um, but uh, I trust that you will come with the same sense of faith and expectation in spite of the heat. Matt and Wendy Thomas are back there. Can you just guys say hi? Matt and Wendy Thomas were part of the church from when, when we started in the, in the very early days and were with us for about a year until they moved to Boston and then New York. It really is awesome to see you guys. Look forward to chatting afterwards. Um, anyway, getting distracted. All right, Ruth chapter 3. We have this... Uh, saying in the Sudworth household, a little thing that we call uh, in the Sudworth household, the Sudworth smile. And what that basically is, is um, it's the term that our girls have given to that kind of outward smile that I sometimes put on my face when I'm asked to do something that I don't particularly want to do. And I know you're laughing because either you know exactly what I'm talking about because you know that you do it, or if you know me well, you know that I do it all the time. You know that when, you, when someone asks me to do something and I'm like, all right, I guess I will, and I put on this really fake smile on my face. My mother perfected it, and uh, she's, she's handed it down, and I'm carrying on, on this incredible tradition in the, in the Sudworth uh, household. There's, a, there's another time that the Sudworth smile sometimes makes an appearance, and that's when I volunteer to do something in the house, and so no one's asked me. No one's asked me to clean. No one's asked me to do a chore. I volunteer to do it, but then when um, someone comes back into the house, when Debs comes back to the house, she doesn't notice that I've done the chores that I've decided voluntarily to do. And so for hours on end, I'll sit with this kind of really false smile on my face, having this argument with myself. Don't ask her if she's noticed the house. Don't ask her if she's noticed the house. And invariably, three or four hours into this internal argument, I'll eventually say, did you not notice that I cleaned the house for you? Or something like that. And that always doesn't end very well. The point I'm trying to make with those two kind of fun stories is simply this. The stuff that is in our hearts, whether good or whether bad, will eventually manifest itself in the things we say and the things that we do. Even if we try our best to absolutely hide the reality of what's in our heart. And Jesus actually teaches on this. Jesus says in in one of the Gospels, he says this. He says, the good man brings out the good things from the good that is stored up in his heart. And then Jesus goes on to say, and the evil man, and I want to say, let's just stop there for a moment, because when we come across that phrase, the evil man, immediately we assume it's not us, because we're not evil. So let me just change up the wording a little bit to try and make it a bit more applicable to you and I. The good man, bring, out of the good things that are stored up in his heart, brings up good things. But the self-righteous man, or the self-centered man, out of the self-centeredness, that is stored up in his heart, 
brings out self-centered things. Does that sound a little bit more applicable to our situation? And then he goes on to say, for out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. Basically what Jesus is telling us is that our true selves, the true reality of what is happening in our hearts, will eventually manifest or eventually outwork itself into words and deeds, into the things that we say or the things that we do. We've made some kind of light-hearted comments about that, but this has some pretty serious or important, uh, very sort of significant um, you know, implications. There are times when I know I have done on the, on the outward, uh, you know, outwardly, it appears like I'm doing very godly and very kingdom-minded things. But if it's not done with the right heart, if it's not done with the heart that desires to honor God, how many of you know that those desires are not going to be outworked into the reality of kingdom impact? God will never allow ministry to happen through us until we've given him access to our hearts so that ministry can happen in us. And giving God the space and giving God the room to work in us is absolutely essential. This was a lesson that we learned, unfortunately, the hard way before we planted this church. God had stirred our hearts to consider church planting. We'd been praying about it, and we felt it was right about 12 years ago to get ourselves ready to plant a local church. And we went off, our family, myself, Deb, and our two kids then, spent four months traveling around South Africa, visiting various churches to prepare ourselves for what eventually would become a church plant here in this nation. And when we got back to our home church, busting with faith and and expectation for God to do great things through us, our lead pastor at the time came to us and said, please, will you lay this thing down of church planting for at least another year? Because we need you back at home base. And then he said, oh, and by the way, another couple on the eldership team are actually going to be released to New Zealand to go and plant a church. They hadn't been on church planners training. There was no indication that they were going to be the couple to be chosen uh, at that time to go and plant. We were meant to be that couple. We had gone on church planners training. We had said yes to God, and now we had to lay this down. And what we did was the very thing that I've just spoken about. We both put on our Sudworth smiles, and on the outside we were, okay, and this is for Jesus, and let God be glorified through it. But can I say in our hearts, For at least six or seven months, we grumbled and we fought and we were restless. We were resentful in our hearts because God was not releasing us. And the lesson that we had to learn was that God is not focused so much on the external things, but he's focused on the condition of our hearts. The greatest preparation for church planning that we had was not learning the business side of things or or the financial side of things or not learning about the importance of of, uh, sort of, you know, all the, like, all the, uh, it's the legal issues that are part of sort of church planting or, or any of the church strategy. It was finding God's heart and realizing that we met, had to make sure that Jesus was the one that we were doing this for. It was the most important and vital lesson that we could ever learn. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've probably heard at least one, probably a few sermons entitled, what is in your hand? You know those, those sermons that are often taught around Jesus feeding the 5,000 with three fish and five loaves? Or those sermons that are often taught when Moses stands up uh, in front of the Red Sea and just with a simple staff in his hand, puts his staff out and the Red Sea parts. And, and the application that is often brought in those sermons is the things that God has entrusted to you, the finances or the resources or the relationships or the influence or the gifts or the talents that he's given to you 
What are you doing to use those for the advancing of his kingdom? Have you heard sermons like that? I know I've preached a few here at church in the city. What is in your hand? But the question that I've been asking myself as I've read Ruth 3 is a question that I think is far more important than asking what is in our hand. It's a question that I think has to precede what is in our hand to make sure that the things that we do have at our disposal, the influence and the relationships and the resources and the gifts, that those truly do have kingdom impact. And I think Ruth chapter 3 opens up some of those questions and we're going to look at that together. So just a very quick recap about what's happened in Ruth, uh, Ruth so far, just to kind of get those uh, uh, who haven't been with us from the beginning up to speed. You'll notice in Ruth chapter 1 verse 1, the story starts with a phrase, in the days when the judges ruled. These were, these were dark days for Israel. These were, these were days of, that, that were characterized by independence and self-reliance. These were days that were characterized by uh, uh, a distance from God's word and a rebellion against God's authority. These were days of not only a a physical famine, but a spiritual famine as well. And during that time, a woman by the name of Naomi decides to leave Bethlehem. This is the promised land, the land that God had brought his people to. She decides to leave Bethlehem with her husband and with her two sons, and they go to a land called Moab. Moab was a pagan nation. Moab was known for its sexual promiscuity. Moab was a continual thorn in Israel's side. And of all places, Naomi decides to go there. During the 10 years that she's in Moab, her sons marry local women. Uh, Eventually, both her sons and her husband die, leaving Naomi and Orpah and Ruth, her two daughters-in-law, destitute and absolutely hopeless. Naomi decides to return back to Bethlehem and urges her daughters-in-law to stay behind. Orpah agrees But Ruth makes this incredible statement in the back end of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse uh, 16 and 17, if you have a Bible. And she says to Ruth, uh, sorry, Ruth says to Naomi, she says, Naomi, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you stay, I will stay. I will die where you die. Your people will become my people, and your God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, will become my God. It's an incredible statement for Ruth to make. She's not only covenanting herself to, to, to Ruth, uh, sorry, to, you know, she's not just covenanting herself to her mother-in-law, Naomi. She's covenanting herself to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so they move back in chapter 2, they move back to Bethlehem. And chapter 2 very, very basically deals with the story of when Ruth decides to sign up for this welfare-to-work program. She's poor, they're destitute, they have no money, and so she signs up to, to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. The Bible uses the phrase in, um, in, verse, uh, in verse 3 of chapter 2, it just so happened, or, or as it turned out, Ruth found herself gleaning in the field of Boaz, who was a relative of, of, of her mother-in-law. When you read that phrase, it just so happened, or if you read that phrase as it turns out, can I say, please substitute the phrase for the sovereign and gracious hand of God was moving upon Ruth and Naomi. Don't read it as luck would have it. This is the hand of God. This is the sovereign move of God, making sure that his people are provided for. Ruth works hard in chapter 2 and eventually comes back to Naomi with a sack, a a, a huge sack, 80 pounds worth of food, which will provide for them for weeks. 
and Naomi's heart begins to soften, what was once a bitter and hard and angry-hearted God begins to soften as she sees the continued faithfulness of God despite her rebellion and despite her bitterness. If you have a Bible, look at uh, chapter 2, verse 20. Naomi makes this amazing statement. Speaking of God, she says, He has not stopped showing His kindness to the living and the dead. And that word kindness is best translated covenant faithfulness. God has not stopped showing His covenant faithfulness to me despite my rebellion and bitterness. And friends, that's a beautiful picture of the God we serve, isn't it? Despite our hardness, despite our bitterness at times, despite our independence and rebellion, God continues to show himself faithful. This was something that Ruth was beginning to learn, something that Boaz already knew, but this covenant faithfulness of God was something that Naomi needed to remember once again. And so that brings us to chapter 3. If ChristianMingle.com or eHarmony.com was available in Ruth's day, uh, she was desperate to find a a husband. So perhaps she would have posted this on ChristianMingle.com. By the way, there's also JDate.com for for Jewish people, so maybe she, she, she should have posted on there. But this is what Ruth perhaps would have said. Hardworking woman, eager to forget the past, looking for a dependable man of character for long walks in the barley field. regrettably comes with an already attached mother-in-law. I think it was clear that Ruth was in desperate need of help to try and find a husband. I mean, who was going to marry a foreigner, a Moabite nonetheless? And Naomi realized that Ruth needed help. If you turn back to chapter 1, you'll see that Naomi has already tried before to, to help Ruth find a husband. But when she did in, what she did in chapter 1, it was from a place of, of incredible self-pity and self, self-righteousness. She said to Ruth back then in chapter 1, God has turned his hand against me. God has turned away from me. My life is bitter. Ruth, I urge you so that you don't go through what I go through. Stay here in Moab and find yourself a husband. But now, friends, her heart has changed. Naomi's Ruth, her heart has been softened to the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And so now from this place of of God beginning to break open her heart, she now desires to help Ruth from a place of of really seeking Ruth's best. In verse 1, she says this, Should I not try to find a home for you? And the, 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 the exact translation of that is, Should I not try to help you find rest? I love that. Should I not try to help you find rest where you will be well provided for? But the challenge that faced Ruth and Naomi was that Ruth was from Moab. And no one from Israel in their right mind would ever marry someone from Moab. She's a foreigner. But Naomi had a plan. And Boaz was the key ingredient in this plan. Verse 2, isn't Boaz one of our relatives, she said? Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the, on the threshing floor. What would happen at the end of the harvest was all the workers would gather the grain that they had harvested, and they would lay it out on these hard floors, these threshing floors, and you know, either using them, themselves or animals, they would stamp on, on, the, on these big stalks of barley, breaking up the grain from the husk. 
And then in these huge barns without sides so that the evening breeze could blow through, the workers would, would gather these huge kind of shovels and throw the, the wheat or the barley into the air and the wind would blow away the husks, leaving the grain behind. This was hard work. Everyone was involved, including the owner of the fields. But at the end of it, they would celebrate together and they would party together. And then some would say they would fall asleep to protect the grain, but perhaps they were falling asleep for other reasons after a massive party celebrating the fact that uh, the the harvest was, was over. Needless to say, Naomi realized that it was time for her to make a move. Ruth's work contract was coming to an end. It was the end of year party. You know those fateful end of year parties? And Ruth and Boaz had met eight weeks earlier, and Boaz hadn't shown any intention or any interest in Ruth. Perhaps he was the kind of more introverted, shy type. And so, and so Naomi thought to herself, I need to, I need to do something. I need to show some initiative. And so she hatches this incredible plan. You might think to yourself when you hear this story, how on earth is that displaying faith in God? How on earth is, is, is this action, this plan from the mother-in-law of Ruth showing any faith or any trust in God? And can I say, I think it's the, the, the absolute opposite. I think she is showing incredible faith in God's word. Naomi is doing what she knows that she is allowed to do within the, con- within the confines of God's word. God's word made clear provision for, for, you know, for the poor, and it placed expectation on the extended family to reach out to those in their family who were, who were in need. Naomi knew that, and she was putting her faith in the word of God. This, for me, friends, is something that I spoke about last week. It's showing faith in action when we know the, the, what the word of God says. Sometimes, friends, and I I said this last week, but I'll say it again. Sometimes I think we can get paralyzed into non-action because we overanalyze the situation even though we know what God's word is. We demand or we expect God to give us an angelic vision and 15 prophecies to confirm what we already know to be in God's word for us to do. And I want to say, let's not get to that place. This is a beautiful picture of, 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 the, of man or woman partnering with the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God, friends, is, is, is an incredibly difficult and impossible thing to teach on. It makes absolutely no logical sense whatsoever. But the Bible teaches this, that God, who is sovereign and good over all things, big and small, He's sovereign over those things for His glory and for our good, This this sovereign God always gets his will done despite total and absolute human freedom. That makes no sense. But that's what the Bible teaches. And I've said this before, friends. We can't think that theology is, is always logical. You cannot explain the incarnation to me logically. That Jesus can be 100% man and 100% God at the same time. And this is a beautiful example of the sovereignty of God and, and, and Naomi partnering with God in this sense. Now read verse 3 and 4. This is Naomi's fantastic plan. She says to Ruth, wash yourself. It's a great place to start. Go and take a bath, she says, and, and put on some perfume. And then put on your best clothes. And go down to the threshing floor. But don't let Boaz know that you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, note the place where he is lying. 
Then go and uncover his feet and lie down next to him. And he will tell you what to do. I'm pretty sure he would tell her what to do. We're going to see, don't be shocked, but we're going to see the implications of that. This is a remarkable thing for Naomi to expect Ruth to do. Friends, I I guarantee a text message would have been so much simpler. You know, Naomi, send Boaz a text and say something like, Boaz, I thought we totally had something going. And OMG, it's been eight weeks since you last spoke to me. Can you tell me, is there going to be anything between us or not? That would have been so much clearer and so much more simple and so much safer. Because what Naomi is asking Ruth to do in verse, in, in verse 4 is incredibly ambiguous. And even what is so remarkable about verse 4, if you study the original Hebrew, each of the phrases in verse 4 could be translated to be something far more suggestive than what is written in our translation. So the question we've got to ask ourselves is, what on earth is Naomi suggesting? Is she really suggesting that Ruth go and seduce Boaz? Is she suggesting that, that, that Ruth behave like the Moabite that she really is? Remember, the nation, the pagan nation of Moab, sexually free and loose? Was she expecting Ruth to go back to her roots and become that woman again? Or was Naomi simply asking Ruth to make her intentions known to Boaz and in in doing so, invite Boaz within the confines and the constrictions of God's word, inviting Boaz to respond to the responsibility that he has to be a kinsman redeemer? Personally, I think it's the latter. I think Naomi trusted the godliness of Boaz. And I think that in the short time that she had seen Ruth follow Yahweh, the God of Israel, she was trusting in the godliness of Ruth and her faith in the God of Israel. I think this is a beautiful picture of Ruth seeing in, sorry, that it's, it's a beautiful picture of Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, seeing in Ruth that she doesn't have to be a product of her past. She doesn't have to be defined by the woman that she once was. And can I say, friends, for every one of us sitting here, there are things that we have done in our past that shame us. There are things that we have done in our past that, 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 that produce such guilt and embarrassment. And I want to say to each of us, including myself, we don't have to be defined by the mistakes that we've made in our past. God, as we're going to see, is the one who redeems us. Verse 5 and 6, Ruth does exactly as she's told. And then in verse 7, we pick up the story again. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went, down to lie, he went over to lie down at the end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly and covered his feet and lay down. Can I just make a quick detour and make one quick comment about drinking? Because I think this is a good opportunity to do that. Can I say that the Bible does not speak... Uh, uh, against us consuming alcohol. But there are three, I think, three biblical provisions when it comes to drinking alcohol. Number one, we should not get drunk. Number two, we need to obey the laws of the land, which means no underage drinking and no drinking and driving. And number three, the convictions that we carry, whether to drink or whether to not drink, we cannot impose those on other people. And we must make sure that whatever conviction we have, 
we don't allow that conviction to cause someone else to stumble. So just a little aside about, this, uh, about the area of drinking. Verse 8 and 9. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. And he turned and he discovered a woman lying at his feet. Can you just imagine that? <laughs> you know, I've read, I've read so many commentaries on Ruth chapter 3. And not one of them, and not one of them admits that Boaz had hormones. Not one of them admitted that Boaz had red blood cells running through his body. They all portrayed him to be this holier-than-thou man. Can you imagine a man who's been drinking, lying down and waking up, and at the bottom of his bed is this beautiful woman? His heart must have been racing. I don't want to be scandalous in saying that, but let's be real, people. Let's, let's be real with what's going on here. In the middle of the night, something startled Boaz, and he turned and he discovered the woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. Boom, 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 boom. I am your, I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me. It's a beautiful picture. The actual translation is, shelter me under the protection of your wing. It's a picture that points to Jesus. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. Friends, Boaz, despite his heart racing and his hormones rushing, I'm convinced Boaz saw the godliness of Ruth through the statement that she made. Again, trusting God within the, within the confines or the riverbanks of God's word. And so he responds, the Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Friends, this was not a legal transaction that was, that was happening. Boaz was not the closest kinsman, as we will soon find out and discover more next week. There was someone else who had a greater legal obligation than Boaz to marry Ruth. Boaz was not, was not in any way related to her ex-husband. And so he had no legal obligation to, to do this. Otherwise, Ruth would have just walked into the town square and said, Boaz, step up to the plate and do what is legally required of you. What Ruth was doing was she was appealing to the compassion and the godliness and the kindness and the mercy that was flowing in Boaz's heart, she was, comp she, was, she, was, she was appealing to the compassion that was in his heart. And friends, I know it's an obvious thing to say, but it's a beautiful picture of how Jesus has redeemed us. You and I are foreigners. We're foreigners to God. You and I had no legal standing to go before God and ask Him to bring us under the shadow of His wing. But Jesus, the Son of God, redeemed us, paid the price, and set us free from, from, from slavery, set us free from that, and promised that under his wing we would, we would be in covenant relationship, and he would provide for us, and he would protect us. It's a beautiful picture of the redemption of Jesus Christ. And I'm intrigued as well in, the, in verse 11 that, 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 that Boaz calls Ruth a woman of noble character. How did she develop this incredible reputation in a short period of time? Well, I think the Bible teaches very clearly that if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you must become the least of people. 
If you want to be known in the kingdom of God, you need to take on the nature of a servant. If you want to find your life, you need to lose it. Paul teaches death must work in us so that life can be released in other people. And that's what Ruth had done. By covenanting herself to God and covenanting herself to Ruth, she chose to lay down her life to make sure that, that, that her mother-in-law would walk into something of the fullness of God. It's a beautiful picture of covenant relationship. Covenant relationship is not something that we're very familiar with in, in, in our day and age. We know that marriage is an example of covenant, but could I suggest this too, friends? When you and I make a commitment to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we not only are covenanting ourselves to God, but we are, by definition, covenanting ourselves one to another. The people in this room you have a covenant relationship with. Covenant, friends, is incredibly costly. Incredibly costly. Because according to the Word of God, what it means if we're in covenant with one another is we become less. We start to think less of ourselves. We start to become less preoccupied with ourselves and more preoccupied with the people around us. And that's what was happening here with Ruth and Naomi. Just like every good romantic comedy, there's always an obstacle, isn't there? And uh, Nate's going to unpack this a little bit more next week. But look at verse 12 and 13. Boaz alludes to the fact that there is an obstacle. Although it is true, he says that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman that is nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until the morning. And then verse 14 through 18, the story of chapter 3 ends in a very similar manner as it did in chapter 2. Naomi, sorry, Ruth goes home having been blessed by Boaz with a sack full of, of grain, and she goes back to her mother-in-law who asks how the evening went. And I just want to point out verse 17 because it's a beautiful, beautiful picture. In the end of chapter 1, Naomi was moaning at God. And she said, God, you have brought me back to Bethlehem empty-handed. Look at verse 17 of chapter 3. Ruth says to her mother-in-law, Boaz gave me six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. I read that and I just see the smile of God over Naomi's life. Naomi, there was no need for you to fear or to not think that I would come through for you. There's so many things, and as I bring this sermon into land, there's so many things that we could focus on this morning, so many applications and so many ways that we could follow to unpack Ruth chapter 3. And I've already alluded to some of them. Boaz being the incredible example of what Jesus is to us as our Redeemer, the one who brings us under the shadow of his wing. Or the story of Naomi, her heart softening as she becomes face to face with the covenant faithfulness of God, who'd never left her and never for, in any way abandoned her. Or even Ruth and her commitment to ensure that Naomi was, was taken care of. All of those are, 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 are very valid applications to this particular story. But there's one question that I found myself asking throughout this week as I've been reading Ruth 3 over and over again. And that is the question, why? Why would Boaz agree to marry someone from Moab and take with it all the baggage that comes with it? And why? Why would Ruth for a moment even consider obeying or doing what Naomi had asked her to do and putting at risk 
the, 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 the good reputation that she was beginning to develop. And these are two questions that I quickly want to explore. The first one is, why would Boaz say yes? Why would Boaz agree to marry a woman from Moab? And I think it's simply for this reason, friends. It's that Boaz, his heart had been changed by the faithfulness of God. Boaz never abandoned Bethlehem during the famine. Boaz stuck through the difficult and hard and dark times and came through the other end and God blessed him and God poured out his favor upon him. And I think Boaz was able to say at the end of that, I've learned what it means to, be, to have nothing and I've learned what it means to have a lot. And God has taught me to be able to praise him whether I have nothing or whether I have much. And I think Boaz, his heart was so filled with the goodness of God, so filled with the favor of God, so putting his trust in the favor of God and not in the things that he had, that he was desiring to make sure that that overflowed into the lives of those around him. It reminds me of the story of Abraham and Lot. You know that story in Genesis where God says to Abraham, Abraham, tell Lot to go to the land to the left or to go to the land to the right, and you go where he chooses not to go. You know that story? And so Abraham goes to Lot and he says, Lot, choose the land to the left and I'll go to the right. Choose the land to the right and I'll go to the left. But it's your choice. And so Lot's standing there thinking, what, where should I go? Left or right? Left or right? Let me tell you, friends, Abraham wasn't standing behind Lot going, oh, oh, crossing his fingers. Please choose to the left. Please choose to the left because I want to go to the right. Abraham's conviction was no matter where Lot chose, no matter where I end up, because God is faithful, I know he will take care of me. And that's the heart that Boaz had. His faith was not in the wealth of his possessions. His faith was in the goodness of God. But the question that's a little harder to ask is, why would Ruth agree to Naomi's plan. And as I said earlier, I think it's because Naomi had chosen to covenant herself to God and to covenant herself to, 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 to her mother-in-law until she saw her living in the fullness of God. She was putting God to the test within the confines, within the restrictions, within the riverbanks of his word, knowing that she could stand on the promises of God. Ruth and Boaz were completely different in that Boaz had so much in his hand and Ruth had absolutely nothing in her hand. But Ruth and Boaz were, both, were exactly the same because they both put their faith and their hope in the goodness of God their Savior and God their Lord. And so I come back, just as we close, I come back to the question I asked at the very beginning. What is in your hand? What resources and things have God, has God given you? What relationships have, has God in, in, entrusted to you? And I want to suggest, friends, that the question we've got to ask ourselves is not so much what is in your hand, but a question before that, a question that is far more important. What is in your heart? Because what is in your heart will determine what you do with what is in your hand. Maybe you're sitting here today and you can identify with Ruth and you say, I have nothing in my hand. I have seen, I look back in my life, I look at my life at the moment and I don't feel like God has blessed me with very much. Well, I wanna say, friends, God is still able to use you if your heart is turned towards him. 
And perhaps you're here today and you identify with Boaz. You look at your life and you see incredible faithfulness and favor and great relationships and finances or whatever else that is in your hand. And I want to suggest to you the same question needs to be asked. What is in your heart? Can you say that you have more faith in Jesus who is in your heart than in the stuff that is in your hands? I want to end off with three little applications for every single one of us. What do we do now? What do we, how do we make sure that what is in our heart is, is focused on Jesus so that we can use effectively what is in our hand? Three things that I want to suggest before we close this morning. Number one, I want to suggest that God is calling us to guard our hearts. God is calling us to guard our hearts. What I mean by that, friends, is we must be careful not to get caught up in comparison. Oh my goodness, I only have this much, but so-and-so has that much? Why hasn't God blessed me like that? Guard your hearts against the danger of comparison. One of the best ways that we can guard our hearts, friends, is through worship. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7 through 9, I think it is, it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. You know what worship does? Worship doesn't make the presence of God come because God is already present. Worship heightens our awareness to the presence of God. And when we are aware of God's presence, our hearts are protected. It actually says in Philippians 4, and the peace of God will guard your hearts in Christ Jesus. Guard your hearts, friends, against comparison. Guard your hearts against frustration. Guard your hearts against being angry with God because you don't think you have enough to be able to use for the advancing of the kingdom. Ruth had nothing, but her heart was yielded to God. Secondly, I want to say, I want to encourage you to yield or incline your heart to God. It simply means to soften your heart or to surrender your heart to God. Submit your heart to God. Surrender your heart to God. Yield your heart to God. I've preached this, I think, for as long as, as we've led this church. God does not look for perfection. God looks for a yielded, submitted, surrendered heart. David calls it in Psalm 51, he calls it a, a broken and a contrite spirit. It's simply the opposite. Think of a wild stallion that is independent and full of pride and full of gusto. A surrendered heart is the complete opposite of that. It's a submitted heart. It's a yielded heart to Jesus. Guard your heart. Incline your heart. And then thirdly, let the Lord fill your heart. Let, your Lord, let the Lord fill your heart with the love of Jesus. Romans chapter 5 verse 5 says that that, that. that God, by the Holy Spirit, will fill our hearts with His love. Ask God to, to fill your heart. Guard your heart. Protect your heart against bitterness and anger. Yield your heart. Surrender it to Jesus. Make it available to him. And then ask God to fill your heart.